Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, Quinta, here we are again. Alanless. Back in our Alanless phase of our what a creative project here. I do feel like we have a lot more space to breathe. We brought in Molly. Molly, thank you for joining us. It's always uh, always good to be here. As our substitute Alan. All in one I geographic location. I have not. I have not Molly, Alan. Molly is so much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a lean Alan. You're like uh, Alan, uh, you know, it's like a turkey burger for Alan, I think. In a good way. I think it depends on how you feel about turkey burgers, I guess. I mean, I, I, I'm I, not the vegetarian of this group. Yeah, um, I, I like turkey I no burgers, opinion. but I'm going to be honest. I don't understand the reference. Uh, I think later we're going to talk about other references people don't understand, such as, sir, this is a Wendy's. But that is, uh, that's coming. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Wendy's. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be back here in the virtual studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And back with another one of our regular special guests, Molly Reynolds. It's good to be here. Who is kindly stepping in for Alan, who, after two weeks back, was too exhausted from his return to the difficult weekly routines here at Rational Security uh, and is taking a week off. Uh, no, not really. Alan had a, a bit of a situation pop up at the last minute, um, but we are thrilled to have Molly step in for us as well. And I should note our uh, legal fellow at Lawfare here, Anna Bowers, also joining us for a uh, one of our segments that we recorded separately that's going to be edited in here and with a little bit of studio magic. So thanks to Anna for joining us briefly as well, but not here uh, in this particular live part of the conversation. And we are excited to have you here, Molly, because it has been a big week on your favorite front, on many of our favorite fronts, the Capitol Hill front, and on many other fronts here in National Security News. So we are excited to have you here for what we are calling the Sir, This is a Wendy's edition, uh, in recognition of some of the sharper lines of inquiry we heard put forward by the Supreme Court uh, and Supreme Court advocates in that particular case this week. Our topic one, the shutdown rut. Congress once again has the government on the verge of a shutdown, and while Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has reportedly committed to avoiding one, demands from within his caucus may make that hard, just as they continue to obstruct a path forward for the national security supplemental that contains essential assistance for Ukraine, among other matters. Is there a way forward? Are we shutdown bound? Topic two. Sex, lies, and geolocation. The criminal case against former President Trump and more than a dozen co-defendants in Fulton County, Georgia, remains on hold as defense attorneys continue to dig into the details of Fonnie Willis's romantic relationship with subordinate Nathan Wade. Over the last week, we've seen filings on geolocation data and the examination of Wade's former attorney, but does any of this add up to a potentially disqualifying conflict of interest? And topic three, if this segment were a newspaper, how much would it weigh? The Supreme Court heard extended oral arguments over the constitutionality of controversial Florida and Texas laws seeking to regulate content moderation on social media platforms this week. But amid some very interesting lines of questioning, including one inquiring the weight of YouTube if it were a newspaper, and another inquiring as to whether what this was, in fact, a Wendy's, 
It wasn't clear the court was really, really ready and interested in delving into the technical details. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And where might the court come out? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Well, you always know that when Molly comes on, that means that everything is fine and dandy in the United States Congress, particularly. What is it I not? Am, yeah. I am always <laughs> on that hill. I am always the bearer of good tidings. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Mike Johnson has everything under control. Just kidding. He does not. Um, and I actually noted uh, the New York Times had a, an article the other day that the title of which was as spending talks intensified, Johnson's bind grows tighter. And you, you always know when the New York times decides to give up the ghost and just admit that you have no idea what the hell is going on, that uh, things are, are going really well for you. Yeah. There was a, uh, there's another New York times story on this that carried at least the online headline, Republican demands and divisions drive impasse toward a shutdown and uh, sort of the same logic. Like when the New York Times is willing to name that uh, it is one party and what they are asking not for, both sides. Uh, driving uh, driving the situation, um, you, uh, you have a sense that we are not in a great place. Yes. So we are recording this on Wednesday morning. Of course, we're headed toward another partial government shutdown, I believe, of 20% of the government by Saturday. If nobody does anything, Mike Johnson appears to not have particularly strong control over his caucus. Big surprise. We also have ongoing uh, frustrations over the failure of the House to do anything when it comes to aid to Ukraine. And of course, I haven't even mentioned the impeachment of DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. So, Molly, what are the odds that we get a shutdown? So um, as longtime rational security listeners know, I uh, tend actually to be more optimistic than the conventional wisdom often is on the prospects for avoiding a shutdown. And I actually think this is this time is no different. Um, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. As Quinta alluded to, in a somewhat unusual move, what the Congress chose to do uh, this time around is split the appropriations bills into two pieces. Um, so there are four of the bills um, that expire um, at the end of this week, and then there are another, the other eight of them um, expire at the end of next week. The ones that expire this week are thought to be the quote-unquote easier ones to agree on, and then the ones that expire next week include the ones, among others, the ones for the Defense Department and for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services and Education, and those are the two biggest by dollar size and, you know, really just, I think, kind of by substance um, as well. And so where things appear to stand right now is that Mike Johnson d has said that he does not want the government to shut down. Mitch McConnell has said he does not want the government to shut down. Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries have said that they do not want the uh, government to shut down. And there is, I think, a pretty clear path to avoiding a shutdown. It requires another short-term continuing resolution probably at this point. Um, but like they can do it. Mike Johnson can return to his what has become his increasingly common strategy for moving things um, of 
big substance through the house, which is to go around the House Rules Committee and just bring them to the floor under a set of procedures that means that they need two thirds of the House to approve. Like, I think that's what we're going to see here. I think it is notable, though, that like what has really, by all the reporting, what has really held up the ability to just finally resolve this whole experience is these demands from some number of House Republicans for conservative policy provisions in the appropriations bills. So if you um, read, say, that New York Times story that I mentioned, or a number of other pieces of reporting, you'll see that there's as best I can tell, one big sort of democratic ask that they are holding out for, um, which is around sufficient funding for WIC, which is a program that provides nutrition assistance to um, women, infants, and children. That's what the WIC stands for. But almost everything else that you'll read about is holding up these negotiations are demands from Republicans. And at the end of the day, Republicans control Barely one half of one house of Congress. Democrats control the Senate. There's a Democratic president in the White House. It's also true that the kinds of Republicans who are really holding out for these quote unquote conservative policy wins in the spending bills, even if they got all of the things that they were asking for, the chances that they would vote for the underlying spending deal are pretty low. They are people who are sort of fundamentally opposed to a sizable federal government. And so like, they're probably not going to vote for it anyway. And so if you're not going to get them by conceding to what they want, there's very little sort of logic in kind of why you would do that if you are the, the negotiators. And the last thing I'll say on sort of Johnson specifically is that I tend to think most of what's happening here is structural, which is to say that you have these this sort of faction in the House Republican Conference who is interested in being seen as fighting really hard for conservative principles and is willing to sort of constantly threaten Johnson. But I think it is notable that this is sort of Johnson's first fight like this. And so the way that these this process generally works is that you get to a point in the negotiations where there are things that the relevant subcommittees can't work out on their own. And so those uh, disputes get escalated to the chair and the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee in the House and the Senate. At some point, there's a smaller set of things that those uh, four corners cannot work out on their own, often because someone does not want to be seen as the person seen by their caucus or conference as the person saying no to some ask. And then there's some number of things that get elevated all the way up to the top where the party leaders in the two chambers have to work things out. And I don't know if there are more of those things in this particular round of negotiations, but I do know that, you know, Johnson has not done one of these sorts of things before. And while his predecessors as Republican speakers of the House have had sort of commitment problems in terms of what they can promise that they will deliver from their own conferences, they all had more experience doing this sort of thing than Johnson has in this round. So you sort of combine Johnson's inexperience with the fact that it's hard for him to commit in any negotiation to like the number of votes that he could deliver from his conference. And there, I do think we get into a little bit of like, what's actually Mike Johnson, as opposed to what are these broader forces of the parties and the, di the divisions within the parties and between the chambers and all that sort of thing. 
And am I right that, I mean, this is about to get even harder for the Republicans because Tom Suozzi, the Democratic representative who won the special election on Long Island, is going to be sworn in soon. So that's that's true. Um, he will um, he will take the seat that um, Republicans vacated for him by expelling George Santos. But I think ultimately, in this context, um, because we're probably talking about a world where this deal or deals, if it's split into more than one piece, have to go through under a set of procedures that need two thirds, the exact size of the Republican majority is less consequential. If we were talking about sort of a more regular world where we were, we'd be thinking about a vote on a special rule to advance the, the ultimate deal and that we were wondering whether Republicans would move that rule on their own or whether they would need Democrats to do it, then the exact size of the Republican majority would matter more. But we've, as it's telling that we've, we're just, we've just sort of all moved past that. Like we do, we're not even contemplating that really as a possibility for how this is going to go, which says something about the current House of Representatives. Right. So the, the situation for the House of Republicans is so bad that the fact that their margin is decreasing doesn't matter as much as it might. Yeah. Certainly for things like this. Obviously we saw with the Mayorkas impeachment that in that case where they were trying to move something that was only going to get Republican votes and then ultimately did not get all of them and they had to try a second time to get enough. Um, that is a place where obviously the size of the majority matters. But on these big, like important functions of the United States House of Representatives, we've moved into this world where Johnson and basically everyone else understands that they're going to have to do it with Democratic votes. And wait, just to clarify and drill down this a little bit, like, what is the mechanism that's driving the shift there? Is it the fact that you have people in this hard, further right coalition in leadership positions on committees willing to hold things out? Like on rules, I know there's a number of people from that sort of faction. That was a big part of the original first speaker fight that ended up getting positions on that committee. Is that the reason why the obstacles were even a minority? Because I'm assuming they're, they're not giving up on the Hastert rule, right? Like the, these things will still nominally still have a majority of majority support of Republicans. Or maybe I'm wrong on yeah, that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good question. So I don't really like to use the term Hastert rule anymore. One, because I don't really like to talk about Denny Hastert. And two, it's not a rule. It's a practice. Like it's I not, sympathize on both fronts. It's not, <laughs> exactly. it's not written down anywhere. Um, but I do think that ultimately we will see a lot of effort on the part of Johnson and the other members of the Republican leadership to get this to a point where it gets a majority of the Republican conference. Um, but at the end of the day, like maybe they do and maybe they don't. That I think is an open question. As to like the source of this, I, there's, it's a little bit hard to tease out how much of it is the presence of kind of three members of the, I'm going to shorthand them as like the anti McCarthy faction who are on the House Rules Committee. Um, so as you mentioned, Scott, in the negotiations between McCarthy and his antagonists back in January of 2023 to get him elected speaker, he agreed to put three of them on the House Rules Committee, which is the gatekeeper for what special rules, so what uh, resolutions setting the terms for debate come to the floor of the House. And so that is one obstacle. It's 
also true that starting kind of last fall, just before McCarthy was ousted, we started to see a faction in the Republican conference that included some of those folks, but was larger than them, be willing to take down votes on rules that came to the floor because they were mad about things. So I don't know in this particular case if the obstacle is just if they tried to bring an omnibus through the rules committee, if it wouldn't get out of rules because the sort of dissident Republicans would vote against it there, and or if they brought it to the floor, if it would, if the rule would fail on the floor because enough Republicans would vote against it, because we've sort of thrown out the norm that you always vote for the rule that your party leadership has advanced because a fundamental part of being a party leader in the House is that you get to set the agenda on the floor. So then the the additional piece of this puzzle, as I mentioned, is this question of the supplemental over Ukraine aid, which we have been going around and around and around and around and around in circles on. Um, and I, I confess part of me kind of wonders whether the House Republicans are just hoping that they can just never actually have to address that. Do you think that will be successful? What's the state of play right now? So the sort of... The Senate, after the sort of Lankford Murphy cinema immigration law change experience went down in um, flames. Uh, the Senate did pass a supplemental um, with additional assistance for Ukraine, for Israel, and for Taiwan. So that has gone through the Senate. Its prospects in the House as a um, standalone measure brought to the floor in a traditional way are I think pretty low. But I can sort of see three possible paths forward, two of which fall into the category of kind of procedural neat trick. I'm happy to talk a little bit about them. But I think fundamentally, it's important to remember that another thing that they could do is try to put the supplemental into a deal that funds the rest of the government for the rest of the year. I haven't I've been curious about this as an option for a while. I haven't really seen any reporting that suggests this is on the table. That could mean that it's not on the table. It could mean that people are doing a really good job of keeping it a secret that it's on the table, like they're observationally equivalent. But one reason that that's attractive um, is that to go back to something I said before, the same people who are really mad about passing a big government funding bill are also really mad about the prospect of additional assistance to Ukraine. And so if you're not going to get their votes on the funding bill anyway, like, why not just put the money for Ukraine in the bill too? I don't know if that's politically untenable for Johnson. A big sort of question that hangs over both that strategic option and the two procedural neat tricks I'm going to talk about in a moment is I don't think we have a great sense of sort of Johnson's own preferences around additional assistance to Ukraine and how strong they are. So, you know, if we had reason to think that he was like really pro Ukraine, I think it's much easier to see a path where he says, okay, like we're going to do this. I know a lot of my conference is mad about it, but like we're going to do it anyway. So the two sort of other procedural options, if the 
uh, package doesn't hitch a ride with the rest of the spending deal. One involves a discharge petition. Um, I will say that kind of the pro Ukraine assistance forces in the house have done kind of everything that they can to overcome some of the procedural obstacles related to using a discharge petition in terms of layover requirements and like how long it takes for a discharge petition to ripen. They've been sort of pretty creative and clever on this. Um, they're basically rerunning a version of a play that they ran like nine months ago uh, in possible anticipation of a debt limit crisis, which is, you know, they they file some legislation that is like comically broad such that it could cover any amendments to it would be germane. And then they write a special rule that allows them to substitute in new text for the underlying bill on the floor. So they've, they've done that. So if they're procedurally, if there's a world where we're going to get a discharge petition to work for this, like the pro-Ukraine forces have, have done their homework. The bigger obstacle is the, is actually getting the signatures, the 218 signatures. It's a, it's a hard 218 in favor of this. And you, the, the challenge there is that you will lose some Democrats because of the Israel money that's in the bill. Um, you won't get all, um, you won't get the entire Democratic caucus. And then for Republicans, there is a, a very strong norm against members of the majority party signing a discharge petition that's basically trying to go around their own leadership. And obviously, we're living in a world of like eroding norms around how the majority party is supposed to behave. So maybe that's less of a binding constraint than it's been historically. But here again, I think it's really important that we don't know what Johnson's own preferences are. So the last time a discharge petition was successful in the House was in the fall of 2015 on the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank. And there, when it was successful, it was successful in what I like to call John Boehner's um, barn cleaning era, which is to say the period after which he announced he was leaving, but before he actually left the house. So like defying John Boehner in those couple of weeks was a different kettle of fish because he was on his way out the door. And he was at least implicitly supportive himself of the idea of reauthorizing the Export-Import Bank. And we don't know where Johnson is on this. So we don't know what it would mean for members of the Republican conference to like buck the leadership on this, because in this case, I don't think we really know where, where Johnson is. The other alternative kind of procedural neat trick is involves doing something called defeating the previous question. I will not go into the details of this, but suffice it to say, the House has not done this since like 1938. Um, it's been a very long time since uh, since it, it, it went down that particular route. And so I just, it's possible. Anything is possible. This is the United States House of Representatives. But I tend to think that if we're going to see um, additional assistance for Ukraine, it's going to be through a convoluted traditional legislative process as opposed to through a convoluted like procedural set of procedural hijinks as much as I personally would love to watch that happen. So is your sense then that one of the big gateways to the supplemental assistance is probably closing in the next 10 days or two weeks as they have to figure out this funding fight? So if it's not in there, then it 
its odds get a lot slimmer or 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 does that signify that they're getting over the political barriers maybe that may actually make it easier it's hard to know again talk about two things that are like observationally equivalent like if we if it doesn't end up with the spending deal that could be because they're sort of quietly figuring out another way to do it and they don't want to jeopardize in any way keeping the government open over some sort of last minute crisis around support for the bill because it has money for Ukraine in it. That's essentially, frankly, what happened in September. Like in September, Senate Republicans were faced with the choice of hold out for more Ukraine money or risk a government shutdown. And they took keep the government open and like leave Ukraine for another day. And so it's hard. It's that's a hard question to answer. Um, answer, Scott. So moving from the House to the Senate for a minute, the House, of course, impeached Mayorkas uh, on their second a, a very, try. It took them on their two second tries. try. <laughs> yes, um, after a great deal Look, of sometimes of drama. an impeachment's an impeachment. <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> we'll take it. Sometimes it takes a few at bats to hit it so, out of the park. So what happens now in the Senate? There, I know there. You you love nothing more than the question of how how the Senate gets to decide how to handle love, an impeachment. Love a good question about the Senate's impeachment trial rules. So the short answer, which I think is probably sufficient, um, is that the Senate probably can't just do nothing. So as far as I know, um, honestly, at this moment that we're recording, the um, Articles of impeachment have not actually gone over to the Senate yet. I could be wrong about that. Um, but I don't think they've gone over. When they do, the um, Senate's impeachment rules are pretty clear that something has to happen. The Senate has a couple of options for what that could look like that are short of like immediately holding a full trial like they did for, um, for Trump twice. I think the, the reporting suggests that the most likely outcome is that they will sort of go through the required uh, ceremonial is probably too weak, but like there are some initial kind of procedural steps where they swear in the senators and they introduce the impeachment managers. And then probably they will dismiss the charges. That seems to be where this is, um, this is driving in part because you started to see a couple of the Senate's Democrats who are potentially most sympathetic to this cause, um, say that they think this is a waste of time and that the Senate should just dismiss the charges. So Manchin is on record saying that, um, John Tester, who is more importantly running for re-election in a red state, which Joe Manchin is not doing, um, has said that he would vote to dismiss the Mayorkas impeachment articles. And so I, I tend to think that that's where this is heading. I think for, for fans of, um, Senate pomp and circumstance, we may still get to see the part where they all sign the book, uh, and they have the pens and all that stuff. But I think ultimately. But John, John Roberts will not be there. He does uh, not have to I show up not, for this one. Uh, we should not expect John Roberts to be there. I bet they don't even make ceremonial pens for this. So my, one of my favorite, uh, anecdotes from the Clinton impeachment, and this is from, um, Peter Baker's book on the Clinton impeachment, uh, which is called The Breach, which is that if I'm remembering correctly, they had ceremonial pens made and they spelled something wrong on the pens, which is really just 
uh, a delight. It's one of my favorite things. And so I don't, I don't think we're going to get there. Um, and I do think the last thing I'll, I'll say on this is, uh, to shout out some work that we've run on Lawfare by um, law professor Brian Kalt is I do think that like, even as we're sort of joking about them just getting rid of this particular, dismissing this particular set of charges, I do think it's, it's like, and we're mocking the house for taking two tries to do this. Like, it is notable that we have reached a point where this is a sort of seen as a, um, at least in some corners, an acceptable use of the House's impeachment power, which is to fundamentally, to my mind, over a set of like policy disagreements with and disagreements about policy implementation on the part of a um, cabinet secretary to say like that rises to the level of an impeachable offense. And it rises to the point where we are going to invest the resources associated with making something into an impeachment inquiry. And I am, as, as Quinta knows, because we've talked about this a lot in the January 6th context, always kind of paying attention to the way in which um, soft precedents get set for what what is necessary for the House to be able to say it cares about something. So in the in the context of the January 6th inquiry, I think we're now in a world where there's always going to be pressure on the leadership in the House to stand up a select committee when as a signal that it really cares about something. Like, the, you know, we've seen this with the um, select committee on China, that this is, you know, the House Republican leadership signaling, we really care about this. Look, we're giving it a select committee like the January 6th committee. And so I, I wonder if we're moving into a world like that for impeachment, where the signal that like you really disagree with someone, a cabinet secretary of the other party is you try to impeach them. Um, I don't think that's a good world. Um, and I'm not sure we're there, but I, that is something that I am like taking away from this Mayorkas episode. And do you think the way the Senate response enters into that equation a little bit? Because you could see a world where kind of both both sides of the sword, where if they're super perfunctory and they don't do anything that takes time away, then the House might feel like, well, there's no cost to the Senate. So even our allies in the Senate who we may need for other things don't really care. Then again, the Senate doesn't want to commit itself to hold a full multi-day trial every time because if the House does it 10% as often, it's still going to be a, be a big waste of floor time. How do you game that out if you can? Maybe you yeah, just it's can't. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's uh, – I mean, I think in this case, because we have divided party control and the impeachment in the House was driven by Republicans and um, Democrats control the Senate, um, it, it's pretty sort of clear what's going to happen. Um, I'd be quite – I think a, an interesting counterfactual is – what would happen in a world where Republicans control the Senate? And then what does McConnell do in that scenario about a set of impeachment articles um, that come over from, um, from the House? He probably faces a different, um, a different set of, set of pressures. Um, I think in this case, there's also a degree to which, and this is sort of tied into the point that I was making before, that because House Republicans are kind of unable to legislate 
certainly unable to pass things that they really like that the Senate would also approve of, but even increasingly are kind of unable to pass even messaging bills through the, um, through the House. There's this question, well, then like, what are they, what did they do with their time? And I think, so I, I do wonder if one of the ways that we ended up with the, the Mayorkas Im- impeachment is, well, you know, we're not legislating. What else are we going to do? Um, we're really mad about what's happening at the border. So we're going to impeach the, um, Homeland Security Secretary. Well, going from some complex inter-office relationships on Capitol Hill, let us talk about complex inter-office relationships in Fulton County, Georgia, with our colleague Anna Bauer, who joined us to pre-record a segment a little earlier this morning due to a little scheduling complication. We're going to cut that in now, and then we'll come back live to the rest of the episode afterwards. Not live, but you understand what I mean. So, Anna, the trial in Fulton County of former President Trump and 18 co-defendants, if I recall correctly, 19 defendants total, has been on pause, more or less, uh, for the last few weeks as we delve into some pretty heated topics. Not heated in the way you normally think of in a trial context, uh, but there's a lot of uh, delving into the personal life of Fannie Willis, the prosecutor, and her relationship specifically with one of her subordinates, one of her more senior subordinates, uh, Nathan Wade, an attorney who was brought on as a contractor, essentially, to help manage a variety of investigations. We saw a number of twists and turns just in the last week over this matter, which has been brought forward in an effort to disqualify Willis and Wade and effectively their entire office from bringing forward the prosecution in regard to former President Trump and at least one of the defendants, although presumably the same standard would apply to all of them um, if the court would rule that way. Tell us a little bit about these new revelations we've had in this past week and how they are filling out the picture. Uh, I know we've gotten stuff about geolocation data. Some people are subpoenaing and tracking Wade's cell phone during periods questioning when this relationship started. We know we heard testimony from one of Wade's former divorce lawyers um, or maybe current divorce lawyers the other day um, that was maybe not what people were expecting on either side of the equation. What is this adding up to and, and where does it lead the prosecution? Right. So remember that there's this key factual dispute that's going on in this disqualification motion. The claim that is made or that was originally made by my counsel for Mike Roman, who is one of the people indicted alongside Trump, uh, was that basically Fonnie Willis hired a romantic partner as the special prosecutor in this case. And because of the lucrative contracts and hourly billing rate that he received as special prosecutor in the case, uh, she then had these kind of incidental or indirect financial benefits because he took her on vacations during, during the pendency of the case. And that that then, you know, generated a conflict of interest because she had an incentive to continue to prosecute these folks for as long as possible in order to, you know, continue to reap the rewards that were being heaped upon Nathan Wade. That is how uh, Mike Roman constructed the argument. And a key part of that argument is that Fonnie Willis was already engaged in a relationship with Nathan Wade when she hired him in November of 2021. Uh, as the special prosecutor to, you know, investigate and then prosecute this Trump case. 
on one hand, we had these evidentiary hearings in which both Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis went under oath in which they testified that they did not begin dating until 2022. That is after he was appointed as special prosecutor. And then on the other hand, the defense had uh, an old friend of Fonnie Willis or a former friend of Fonnie Willis. Her name was Robin Yurti, who uh, seemed to contradict that testimony by testifying that, no, you know, Fonnie Willis had told her in 2019 and in 2020 that uh, she was in a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, but it was all very kind of conclusory and and Robert Yurti couldn't really give any details about those conversations. She didn't seem to be a very uh, great witness for the defense. But the person who was billed as the kind of star witness who was going to really prove that the defense, you know, was was right when they said that the prosecution was misrepresenting when this relationship began is this man named Terrence Bradley. He is a law firm or former uh, law firm partner with Nathan Wade and then also represented him in his ongoing divorce dispute. And, and we had, during those evidentiary hearings that we had during the February 15th and the 16th, Terrence Bradley was a very reluctant witness. He invoked privilege many times about the timing of the relationship. Uh, so we didn't really learn very much from him. And that brings us to this week where many of the developments this week dealt with that key factual dispute as to whether or not the relationship started before or after Nathan Wade was appointed. The first development, Scott, is with Terrence Bradley. He had an in-camera meeting or a private meeting with Judge Scott McAfee on Monday. And the purpose of that meeting was for Judge McAfee to determine if Terrence Bradley, you know, was accurately invoking privilege and, and that he, the parties really did meet their burden of invoking privilege as to the timing of the relationship and any communications that Bradley and Wade had about that relationship. Uh, Judge McAfee ultimately decided that they had not met their burden and that Terrence Bradley needed to retake the stand. And then the second development, as you mentioned, deals with these cell phone records. The defense counsel subpoenaed AT&T for the phone records of Nathan Wade. And what they found, according to an affidavit that was filed along with those phone records, is that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis exchanged, I think it was about 2,000 phone calls and a total of about 12,000 combined calls and text messages over the course of 2021. Uh, they also isolated a few evenings before Nathan Wade was appointed as special prosecutor that seemed to suggest that around, you know, in the late evening hours, Nathan Wade was communicating with Fonnie Willis, traveled to the area in which she was living at the time, and then uh, traveled back to his home in the early morning hours around 4 a.m., and, and then they were, you know, contemporaneously texting or calling each other at the same time. So it it seemed to suggest from the way the defense portrayed the information that maybe they were together at that time. And, and so the defense put forward all of this information saying this needs to be put into evidence because it tends to suggest that the relationship started before, uh, 2022. So 
that is kind of where we where we were yesterday before Terrence Bradley retook the stand, which we can get into if you guys want to. But that's I think that that summarizes some of the developments. But it's been a lot, and we still have more to go this week. We have legal arguments on the disqualification issue on Friday, and Judge McAfee will also decide then if he's going to admit this cell phone evidence that the defense wants to get into evidence. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And let's let's take a minute to kind of step back a little bit here. Do we still have a hard sense of like what the standard Judge McAfee is going to be applying in this case? Do we have a sense about where the exact line is and how these facts line up with that? Because we have we're seeing a lot of discussion about this relationship, and then there's the the inference that there is some sort of special interest or conflict of interest arising from whatever state this relationship may have been in, but the the economic ties to it, the idea of these kickbacks strikes me as, as, as that's still an essential part of this evidence is this idea that Fannie Willis is still getting some sort of financial benefit. Is that right? Is that part of the standard or is there more fuzziness there? Right. Well, so what the defense, uh, the original idea, of course, was that she was getting some kind of financial benefit and that that you know, created this conflict of interest because it gave her some kind of financial incentive to continue to prosecute these folks. Uh, the standard under Georgia law, as I read the law, is actual conflict. Uh, and that means that the defense needed to show some kind of real or concrete evidence that there really was a kind of kickback scheme of sorts or that there really was a financial benefit that uh, Fonnie Willis was gaining from this prosecution. During the evidentiary hearings, and Ben and I wrote a lengthy analysis of all of this, but what we heard is that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade both testified that even though they did go on vacations together, Fonnie Willis reimbursed him in cash for those vacations. You know, Ben and I ultimately came down on the uh, conclusion that we didn't think that there was enough evidence to suggest that Fonnie Willis should be disqualified on an actual conflict standard because it didn't seem like there really was any financial benefit that was gained. And, and even if there was, it, it didn't seem like it was maybe enough to really kind of justify or make concrete the idea that there was some kind of kickback scheme. And so, you know, I think that that is 
one issue that the defense is dealing with is is whether or not they've actually met their burden of showing this kickback scheme that they have alleged. And that's maybe one reason why it seems that the focus has shifted from proving the financial benefit aspect to proving what the defense seems to be doing is to proving that, in fact, the prosecution, they allege, lied about when the relationship started. And that matters for two reasons. One is that it affects the credibility determinations that Judge McAfee will be making. So, for example, if Judge McAfee has enough reason to think that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade lied under oath about the when their relationship started, it seems that that's going to affect his credibility determinations about what they said about the cash reimbursements regarding these vacations that they went on. And it seems that it would kind of allow McAfee to maybe make an inference or a presumption that there really was a conflict of interest that that arose because of this relationship, because why otherwise would the prosecution officers of the court be lying under oath? So I think that's the theory uh, for the defense as to why it's important for them to prove when this relationship started, because they say that it started before, and then the prosecutors say that it started afterwards. But then the second issue is the question of whether Regardless of whether, you know, when the relationship started goes to whether there's a conflict of interest that was generated, there's this separate question of whether two prosecutors who are in a disqualification hearing under oath who potentially lied on the stand, that could create something called forensic misconduct. Uh, so that's a separate grounds for disqualification. And, and that could very well be an independent grounds to disqualify them from prosecuting the case. And so I think that is, and again, as, as I said, you know, Ben and I have argued that we don't think that there's enough at this time to disqualify Fonnie Willis. But I think those are the two kind of theories of disqualification. And, and, and that's why the defense has found it important in their minds to argue, you know, this factual dispute of when the relationship started, because they're effectively accusing the prosecution of lying under oath. And so there's a number of different ways that that could lead to disqualification if that is true. I have to say, I just, the longer this goes on, the more astonished I am that we're all still doing this. Like, <laughs> truly, even if it doesn't meet the the legal standard for disqualification, it is beyond me why, if you're Fonnie Willis in this situation, you don't just step down. And I defer to you about the mechanics of how that works, because I know that if they're legally disqualified, the entire office under Georgia law has to step aside. I don't know if Willis personally made the call that she's just not going to do this, how that would work. But it just feels like this is completely absurd. And and I think really, to me, underlines a point that I've been sort of noodling on for a while, which is that this valorization of prosecutors and of various people in in sort of bureaucratic and and civil service capacities can lead down a very weird road if those people are acting less than perfectly. 
you know, I'm thinking here of the, you know, it's Mueller time t-shirts and the Jack Smith votive candles and the Fauci bobbleheads. And now there's a, a picture that someone posted on Twitter of a, a hot pink tote bag that said a man is not a plan on it, which is something that Fonnie Willis said during her testimony. It's just like, what are we doing here? This, uh, this is not, if you're taking this case seriously as a potential criminal offense that needs to be prosecuted rather than a sort of free for all, this just seems like it is not the way to go. Right. And, and Quinta, to your point about why would she not just step down or step away from the case? I've seen a number of takes in which people are suggesting that she should, you know, step away and, and hand the reins over to, uh, someone else in her office. But I think that this is the big issue with this case is that she actually cannot do that. So you're right, Quinta, that if she's disqualified, then the whole office is disqualified. But it's also the case that if she voluntarily recuses herself, the same provisions of the law in Georgia would be triggered and she would basically also have to have the whole office removed from the case, even if she voluntarily d- decides to step away from the case. So it's not as simple as I think people think in terms of why can't Fonnie Willis just give this to one of her deputies uh, and she and Nathan Wade step away. And then there's the, the consequences of her whole office being removed is that it goes to this agency in Georgia called the Prosecuting Attorneys Council. It's a nonpartisan, you know, state agency and, and they would basically be the decision makers as to what happens to the case and who it goes to. They can either appoint a, another district attorney's office or they can appoint, you know, a retired, uh, prosecutor or someone like that to be the special prosecutor and, and keep, continue the case. But talking to attorneys around here, most of them are very doubtful that if it goes to the prosecuting attorney's counsel, you know, many people think either this case will be delayed indefinitely or it will just die altogether. Uh, the concern is that you wouldn't be able to find anyone who actually wants to take this case. Most most people, most attorneys and people in the Atlanta legal community don't think that any of the local DAs outside of Fulton County would want to touch the case. Many people do not have any RICO experience to prosecute the case. And, you know, it would just be such a resource and time suck for uh, DAs that are outside of this area. And then the same goes for, you know, finding some kind of retired prosecutor who might take it. The pay is low. The hours are long. And so it's really doubtful whether this case would continue if Fonnie Willis, if she, if her office either is disqualified or recused. So I think that that's one of the big issues. What I don't understand is why Nathan Wade, you know, I think there's plenty of stuff here with, you know, the way that he was held in contempt in civil proceedings and his divorce case. 
his answers on the stand in the Fulton County case about some of the interrogatories in that divorce case were quite evasive. Um, and they seem to lack candor that is just really unbecoming of an officer of the court. And I think that's sufficient for Fonnie Willis to ask him to resign from the case and step away. And she could still stay on, you know, regardless of whether he's there. And she has plenty of people who have been on this case in her office from the beginning and, and who would be more than capable of, of, you know, taking over from Nathan Wade. So I think what I'm a little bit confused about is just why he remains on the case. Maybe there's a little bit of a perception issue there where they think it might be kind of admitting fault of some sort. But I, I really think that there's a, a really good case to be made that, that Nathan Wade could step aside, even if Fonnie Willis doesn't. So Anna, this is really helpful to someone like me who is like a just I think regular news consumer of this news because and I just want to make sure that I have something right, which is that I think a lot of us have been conditioned from watching kind of the Trump legal experience that when we see things like an attempt to disqualify the attorney, we automatically think of it as, oh, this is a delay tactic. Like they're trying to run out the clock. They're trying to, you know, push as far into the future an actual trial on this, um, on these charges, get past, you know, potentially the general election, that sort of thing. But what you're telling us is that in this case, given Georgia law, it's actually more consequential than that. It's not just the, what we sort of, I think, often see and we can at the federal level in terms of trying to slow things down. This really does the sort of the substance of the law means that if they were to disqualify Willis or just pressure her into stepping aside, we'd really be kind of back at square one. Am I right about that? Right. I mean, it, it, it could be, it could very well amount to dismissal of the case. I mean, it's unclear and I don't want to say that and freak everyone out, but it, it, the stakes really could not be higher. It, I'm, you know, I've been saying for some time now that the case lives or dies with Fonnie Willis. You know, I could be wrong about that, but I am very skeptical that if she either recuses or is disqualified, that this case uh, lives to see another day. So, you know, I've been wrong before um, and and we'll see what happens. But as an example, Burt Jones, uh, who is now the lieutenant governor of Georgia and was once a subject of investigation in the Fulton County case, in the summer of 2022, he sought to disqualify Fonnie Willis from investigating him. The reason being that she held a political fundraiser for his political opponent in the lieutenant governor's race. And she was disqualified, uh, which meant that her whole office was disqualified. And the case then went to the prosecuting attorney's counsel. It has been 18, 19 months since that decision. And there is still no official movement or decision. No prosecutor has been appointed to take over that case. It has just been kind of languishing in the, the hands of the prosecuting attorney's counsel. So I think that that is one example of what could happen with this case where it kind of just goes to the pack and then, you know, we see this kind of indefinite and and slow death of the case. 
Sorry to leave it on that note. Um, this is just like, it's the perfect ending. You know, it's just like when this came out, we were all like, wow, this is like a really sprawling Rico indictment. It's kind of weird how they structured this, I guess. I don't know. And then it's just been like a slow car crash ever since. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk about it more. Mm -hmm. Let us continue our tour of states in the American South and move to um, the set of cases that the Supreme Court heard this week, one involving a Texas law and one involving a Florida law. Both of those laws involve the ability of um, social media companies to engage in content moderation. And so, um, Quinta, I'm going to ask you to start by helping us understand, like, what do the laws in question that the Supreme Court um, was talking about, what do they actually do? What's the heart of the um, of the dispute here? And then we'll talk about sort of what happened before the court. Yeah, well, uh, first off, I should say you've queued up the question of whether or not Florida is in the South, which is a, a topic of great contention. Florida is the South's South, is how no, I think the, a lot the of people farther, think the farther north you go, the farther south you get. That's and as a person who lived much of my life in both Pennsylvania and Michigan, I am deeply invested in uh, the <laughs> what is the Midwest debate. So um, I'm here for any and all criticism that I, uh, I uh, bring in for characterizing both Texas and Florida as the South. I think we can, I think we can fairly say that it's the South, um, for the purposes of this conversation. So both of these laws have a couple different moving pieces, and I'll summarize at a very high level of altitude, in part because, to be completely honest, um, counsel for both Florida and Texas during oral arguments did not themselves seem 100% clear on what various aspects of these laws did. But the very, very short version is that they both limit the ability, the sort of discretion of platforms, what counts as a platform, also an important question, to moderate content on their services. In terms of saying, you know, if you you take down X, you also have to take down Y, or you can't remove certain things. Florida, for example, I believe prohibits removing content from political candidates or from uh, journalistic organizations. Texas forbids uh, viewpoint discrimination in moderation. So at one point, there was a discussion about, you know, well, you it would be okay to take down pro-Al-Qaeda content if you also took down anti-Al-Qaeda content, um, something I'm sure that Facebook loves to hear. Both these Statutes also included, importantly, transparency provisions that required platforms to uh, release a certain amount of information about their content moderation policies and practices. Those are actually not at issue in this case, which I think is important to, to emphasize. So here we're focusing only on the specific content moderation provisions and some provisions that required individualized disclosure, like if you're booted off Facebook, Facebook has to tell you why, essentially. And NetChoice, which is a, a trade association that represents a number of sort of big and, and medium internet companies, uh, is challenging these laws on the basis of the First Amendment. That's super helpful. So at the risk of doing too much tea leaf reading from oral arguments, which I think is always, we always want to be cautious of, 
what was your kind of general takeaway from the interminable four hours of arguments that the court heard um, on this case? I I ran into Quinta um, in the building mid-argument, um, and I asked her how things were going, and she told me that she thought they were going to argue the cases concurrently instead of consecutively. And so that was one answer to how things were going. Yep, we did it consecutively, folks, and it took four hours. And by the end of it, I was just spinning around in my chair, hoping to die. I think everyone was kind of surprised at how oral arguments went for a reason that will be interesting only to Fed courts nerds. So if that's you, congratulations, this is your day. Um, it has to do with the procedural posture of how the cases were brought. Again, very short, high altitude version. Um, these cases were challenged right out of the gate by net choice. So it's a facial challenge, meaning uh, unconstitutional in all circumstances. Again, that's not quite right, but it's, it'll work for the purposes of this conversation, as opposed to an as applied challenge, meaning it's unconstitutional in its specific application. That led to sort of some weirdnesses in terms of uh, the justice's confusion about how these laws would apply, which kind of platforms they would apply to. And led to all of these kind of tangles and confusions about, you know, who had the burden of showing what and what the test was and on and on and, and so forth, which was magnified by the fact that no one had raised this issue really in the briefing. Um, and it, it hadn't been particularly something that the appellate courts focused on either. So it was kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, and so the advocates really had to, to think on their feet a bit. Um, my read for what it's worth was that this sort of, uh, persnicketiness on the part of the justices over this facial versus, versus as applied question was a way of expressing discontent in a sense with the sort of binary options that they were presented with by Net choice on the one hand and Florida and Texas on the other, where Florida and Texas is saying, you know, we can do whatever we want. This is, censorship. It's not First Amendment protected speech on the part of the platforms. You know, just let us do this, basically. And net choice, because of course, they're they're not arguing for the users. They're arguing for the interests of the platforms themselves are saying First Amendment basically precludes, if you take their argument to the end of the line, essentially, it precludes essentially any regulation. Um, and they were also arguing early on that the First Amendment also precluded the transparency provisions. And I think a lot of the justices seemed kind of instinctively uncomfortable with that as the choice that they were being handed. And we're kind of voicing that discontent by focusing on the facial versus as applied issue. At one point, Justice Gorsuch actually asked uh, the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelegar, who um, had moved to intervene in argument and did, did weigh in, you know, well, if we think that net choice is not completely right here, that's hard to address in a facial challenge. Which was seemed to me to essentially say, like, we'd like to take a middle path here, and the way this is postured makes that difficult. So Prelegar um sort of suggested, well, one way we could do this is, you know, you could rule on the specific aspects that everybody has agreed that we're arguing about, um, and then kick the rest of the case back down to the lower courts to kind of figure out what to do next. I think that that is one option. But yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Um, it was, it was odd. It got weird. There was a discussion at one point, uh, the, te- I believe the Texas Solicitor General just dropped in the, sir, this is a Wendy's meme with like no 
real context. And then there was no laughter. I wasn't in the room, but I couldn't hear anything in the live stream. And then just kind of like moved on. Uh, Justice Alito asked if YouTube were a newspaper, how much would it weigh? Which in context is less crazy than it sounds, but it does that string of words kind of makes my brain turn to soup. Did he mean weigh as in like weigh legal arguments or physically weigh? No, like physically weigh. That's strange. His, so his point, to, be, to be fair to Justice Alito, a string of words that I rarely say, I believe he was making the point that it is difficult to analogize between a massive social media platform and a print newspaper, right? And so if you try to compare those, you end up asking weird questions like, if you do word newspaper, how much would it weigh? But it was a very, it was a strange time. So this is a, uh, I think it's a good segue to the kind of bigger picture question that I had for you um, and Scott um, about this case, which is that one of the things that seems to have characterized this case is that it is about like a big unsettled issue. So there's a circuit split. Um, and in this case, it's also, there are also big unsettled issues that intersect with evolving modern technology. So to Alito's point, like how much does the how much does YouTube weigh? Like, how do we analogize from it to a print newspaper? And the court, in this case and some other cases, really seems to be, like, struggling with these kinds of questions. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on why. And is there, like, is it just, like, them's the breaks? Like, this is where we are? Uh, what do we do about it? I think that's right. And it's, I think you saw this in the Gonzalez versus Google case, which was the Section 230 litigation uh, that the court kind of similarly looked at, said, ooh, tough, um, and kicked back down. Um, interestingly, they seem to still be struggling with those questions. There were a lot of questions from the justices about Section 230, including a number that were just like wrong on every level and sort of inside out and backwards. So they're clearly not still up to snuff on the, on the statute. I mean, there's an element, there's an extent to which these kind of internet law questions are tough because we've sort of been skating along for, you know, 20, 30 years without having to seriously grapple with the, the kind of big questions here. And Blake Reed, who's a law professor who studies internet law, has a great, uh, phrase, uh, interpretive debt. Um, that's specifically he's talking there about Section 230, but I think you can, you can kind of argue that in this case too, even on the First Amendment grounds where sort of you build up this edifice that's kind of based on not touching the underlying issue too closely. And then when you have to look at the underlying issue, it turns out so many things are built on that, that it's kind of like Jenga and you are very nervous to, to touch anything at all. So there's an element of that to it. I mean, I, I confess I find it somewhat odd specifically because the court is, I think everybody agrees about to lay waste to Chevron deference, uh, to agency deference in such a way that means that the courts and presumably the Supreme Court are going to be addressing a lot more of these kind of statutory interpretation questions on really difficult technical issues such that, you know, we're going to be going round and around in circles again and again. Right. I mean, my, I'll just say that like my most, and I try not to be a terribly cynical person, but my most cynical view here is that maybe that's the point. And that, you know, if this, if getting rid of Chevron, um, or significantly weakening it is 
should be seen as part of the overall like deregulatory project of the more conservative federal courts that maybe the point is just that we end up in interminable cycles of of litigation um because you know i see very little that suggests to me that congress that without significant additional resources uh that congress is in a, a great position to step up and do its part um in a post chevron world i hope i'm wrong um and there are lots of smart people including some smart people who are um on the conservative end of the spectrum thinking about like what would it mean for congress to engage responsibly in a post chevron world but i can also tell a story um that just leads to more cycles of going round and round in the federal courts. So one one complication with that in the internet law space is that, well, you certainly do have two conservative justices, the chief and Kavanaugh, who were seeming to lean more in the deregulatory end, at least in the net choice arguments. There were at least three, I don't know about Barrett, but Gorsuch, uh, Thomas Alito, who seemed to have gone all in on this sort of like conservative, we need to, you know, prevent the platforms from censorship argument, uh, you know, wanting more regulation, which I think complicates that picture just a little bit. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And, I, you know, the deregulatory push, I think, can be a little bit of an oversimplified conception because the 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 partisan valence in a lot of what is regulation, what isn't, is a little more complicated than this. But I do think there's, you know, essentially, I do think if you were to take as a good faith endeavor critics of kind of Chevron, what they are proposing is to push the burden down on the legislature. And I do think that's what's happening here, too, even though it is not, um, you know, may not result in a deregulatory outcome um, like Gonzalez, Gonzalez and Tama did, where, you know, the law kind of stays put the way it was. You know, it, it is this idea that, they are particularly when presented with a case here where it's this kind of maximalist claim. It's it's a facially a facial challenge, so you're not dealing with specific applications. They aren't in a position to evaluate specific applications, and part of that is not just about like how the court's approaching this and the posture. It's about the legislation that the state legislatures have actually enacted, right? Like they are really broad legislation with kind of broad open terms without a lot of specificity or nuance in terms of how they're going to be applied. That's not unusual for legislation, right? Like the assumption is that gets filled in at the federal level by federal agencies at the state level by, I guess, presumably state agencies, enforcement action, things like that. But like, I'm not surprised to see them wrestle with something with that posture, given that they clearly want to be putting – and I, why I suspect they're going to end up pushing this back down is because they're trying seem to be trying to set up an incentive structure to get the legislature to legislate in a way that has that additional nuance. At the federal level, I think it's a fair question, can Congress actually do that, given the difficulties of legislating at a even more general level effectively uh, and the demands that would put on it as an institution for time-wise, legislative drafting-wise, a million different variables? But I'm not sure Congress uh, – weirdly, I think like the courts and the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court conservatives, like that's just not – they don't get into the nuances of how Congress does stuff. Like this is painfully evident from how they approach statutory interpretation. And so I kind of think they're just like this is the way constitutionally it's supposed to work and they don't mind shoving that all back down. And here you're seeing a similar thing happen. It's just a little different the way it's engaging with the state legislatures. And a lot of it is a reaction to like – what is kind of weirdly written laws? I wonder if the states had enacted a much more fine line in this stuff, a much more calibrated thing. I kind of suspect the court might have been, would have been much more open to it, even though I'm not sure it legally should have been that different. It's not, the posture wouldn't have been different necessarily. 
It gets really complicated. I mean, look, I think that part of the problem here is that we're trying to have a careful legal discussion of two laws that are basically like legislative shit posting. Like these, these right, laws exactly. were never, <laughs> these laws were yeah. never made to be carefully enforced. They're made to look cool on the internet and say, yeah, up yours, basically. And that leads to all kinds of weird situations where counsel for Texas seemed completely unaware that like, a lot of pro-Al-Qaeda speech on the internet isn't illegal, actually, because of the First Amendment. Or I believe it was Florida uh, wasn't sure, Council for Florida wasn't sure whether or not the law would cover WhatsApp. Or Council for Texas wasn't sure whether the Texas law would ban Facebook from leaving Texas, which seems kind of important. Like, there, there are just all these aspects where they just kind of vomited up all this stuff and put it on the table. And the point is the fact that they did that rather than any enforcement. And so what worries me is I have no faith in the ability of the Texas legislature to put together a carefully crafted piece of legislation on social media regulation. Like that is not something that is going to happen. And so that you end up in this kind of ping pong situation where you have states passing absurd laws. It goes up to the courts. The courts are like, Eh, facial challenge seems tough. Then it goes back to the legislature, which is incapable of tightening it up further. And so that there's, there's a, I've complained about hot potatoes in the past in a different context, that there's, there's kind of a similar hot potato here where you have, like, this is an area that desperately needs good policymaking. And it's really hard. And that instead, it's just everyone kind of futzing around and saying, you know, why don't you do it instead? Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. But this would not be Rational Security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? So since Justice Toledo asked if YouTube were a newspaper, how much would it weigh? I am delighted to inform you that The Washington Post has calculated how much YouTube would weigh if it were a newspaper. So I believe, if I'm reading this correctly, if you printed out all of the stills of video content on YouTube that contained words that it would, for, per day, it would add up to uh, 350,000 pounds of newspaper per day. And that is the answer, um, which is eight trucks of newsprint. And now we have an answer to this question. Aren't you happy that you know counting this? The Sunday, not even counting the Sunday supplements with <laughs> exactly. the comics and those <laughs> coupon crossword. books that weigh like a pound and a half. Absolutely. Well, excellent. Well, I, I feel like my intellectual uh, uh, itch has been scratched on that one. For my object lesson, I it's been too long since I've dipped into the colony world. I thought I was hoping Alan would be here to share my joy in a new culinary discovery, but alas, he is not. But I will share it with you. I think I have actually already on this podcast uh, a long time ago sung the praises of my favorite type of canned San Marzano tomato, which is really wonderful, although I don't always get them because they are much more expensive. That is the Bianco di Napoli brand of tomatoes. It's like an alliance between a prominent chef and another tomato company. They're really phenomenal. They're a little too expensive to use all the time, but if you're really doing something special or if you particularly want to use the tomatoes not not fully cooked, so they have a lot of fresh tomato flavor, I think they are better than the other canned brands. But I recently discovered something amazing, which is that they have a roast tomato that you can get, which when you really want to make like salsa in the summer or you really want to do like chili like I did for the Super Bowl – you want roasted tomatoes and roasting your own tomatoes. Yeah, you can roast like bad tomatoes and it's not that bad, but it's a real pain in the butt. And that's what I've been doing. 
I got this can of roasted tomatoes and they're phenomenal. And they're like so good. Again, you can use them pretty much uncooked like in a salsa and it's still up to snuff uh, in a way that I have not found many canned tomatoes are a fair rival. So I'm throwing it back out there. Bianco Dinopoli, roasted red tomatoes. Guys, come sponsor the podcast. It's not a food cast, but it's close enough, at least around the object lesson sometimes, uh, because I think they're phenomenal tomatoes. I'll encourage you. I only found like two cans at Whole Foods once. I don't know how you get them. Maybe you got to mail order them, but I'm, I'm now on the hunt. Molly, what do you have for us? Is it tomato related? Uh, it's not tomato related. For uh, shame. But it is related to some of my previous object lessons on rational security. So, um, listeners will maybe know about my deep uh, interest in podcasts from local NPR stations. Um, I have another one to tee up this week. Um, I do this in part because for those of you who live in the Washington, D.C. area, it's been a rough week for um, our local public media. And so I uh, this is not a, um, a D.C.-based offering, but it is um, – just very well reported and very interesting. And it's a podcast called Short Walk, which is from um, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Um, and it is a podcast about the former, now former South Dakota Attorney General, um, Jason Ravensburg, who um, struck and killed a pedestrian um, and then was impeached. And so it um, appeals to several of my interests, which is both uh, legislative procedure and also um, really just like deep investigative reporting from really talented journalists who work at um, local and regional public radio affiliates. So like I said, it's called Short Walk. I uh, recommend it to you um, if you share any of these or really other um, interests of mine. I'm I'm so excited to listen to that because that's been one of the weirder state level scandals in the last few years. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including The Aftermath, now out in season two. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. For an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits, for more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osban of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guests, Molly Reynolds and Anna Bauer, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.